Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am speaking today with Judith Schwartz, um, who is a freelance writer. And um, well, as far as I'm concerned, she's a, a, a kind of a, a blue chip activist, if there's such a thing. Um, working uh, on quite a number of, of topics which have attracted her um, kind of focus as a writer over time. But uh, Judith and I first connected around regenerative agriculture, the theme of this series, obviously, um, in Spain, in Barcelona, in fact, uh, when she was here visiting the ecosystem restoration camp in, in southern Spain. Um, and have been kind of like trying to find a time to have this conversation uh, and, and record it ever since then. So I'm very excited today to um, actually be speaking with you, Judith, and welcome. Thank you. So you, are, um, you have a book recently published this spring, uh, Water in Plain Sight by Chelsea Green. Um, yeah, so originally that came out three years ago with St. Martin's okay. Press and then Chelsea Green Publishing brought it out in paperback this spring. And okay. there is a new, a new foreword that, um, that builds on some of the reporting that I did in Spain. Um, specifically, I spent three days with Professor Mian Mian um, in Valencia, and he's a really extraordinary fellow. Um, who is a climatologist, meteorologist, every kind of ologist you could think of. Um, and he has been documenting the loss of the summer rains in the Western Mediterranean and connecting that with the loss of vegetation at the coast. So this is someone who knows the Mediterranean, who who can watch clouds and tell you when precipitation will start. And anyway, it was really interesting. And what is most compelling to me is the connection between what we do on the land and what happens in our climate systems. So yeah, that was- This, this is fascinating because for those who have looked into this, uh, you know, the Mediterranean, at least in the Western, right? It's, I don't know what they're talking about in China, but in, in the West, 
we hold the Mediterranean up as several things. It's as kind of like the so-called uh, birthplace of Western civilization and the birth, birthplace of the classical arts and, and this sort of thing. Um, but ecologically, it also stands as a textbook example of what happens when you overgraze and when you cut down the forests and you till and till and till and send all your good soil down slope and eventually under the sea and how that transforms the climate. So to, to have someone detailing that using contemporary technology, I think is immensely important because it's, it's really been anecdotal until recently. You know, all the way, all the way back to you know the classical Greek writers talking about how the destruction of the groves in Greece ended up stopping the streams from running down the mountains right. and drying them up. But it's been observational, anecdotal. Right. So on this visit, we got both. So he uses all kinds of technology. I mean, he's he's he actually invented the technology that people studying volcanoes used. To, um, to, you know, figure out when the next volcano will, will erupt because of the changes of the gases and all of that. So he used a lot of different types of technology to, to measure this. But also, I had the benefit of the anecdote because we drove up to the continental divide where um, the system, the weather system was driven by the Mediterranean or the, or the weather system was driven by what happened on the Atlantic coast. So this was, um, you know, several, like, I think about 100 kilometers from Valencia. But he also could show where forests had been taken down, at what point, what the implications have been, where they're running out of water, um, all these different things. So, but the point is that it wasn't it wasn't all negative. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, there was a lot of negative is this is what we did to the land and this is the, the negative consequence. But also he said that if we change 10 by 10 kilometers, 10 kilometers, you know, squared, um, we can bring back those systems if we regenerate those, those ecosystems. So the tricky thing is that you can bring back the rain by reforesting, but you don't know exactly, you can't necessarily ascertain ahead of time where that rain will fall. So that was very interesting. So, so um, another thing that we talked about is the emphasis on climate and CO2 versus climate and, you know, between land change and climate. And he brought out some old, some books that were out in the 1970s. And I, I researched those that looked at land change and climate. But that conversation really didn't continue in earnest in the same way that the conversation around CO2 has, has continued and, and ultimately dominated. And what he said was with CO2, you can talk and talk and talk and well, nothing ever really happens. I mean, we've seen that unfortunately. Whereas once you start talking about land, things get very personal, things get very real um, to tell people that they can't develop on an entire coast or they can't change systems. That's, 
Yeah, that we're talking, you know, governments have to engage with businesses in ways that they hadn't before. So anyway, it, I just thought that was, that was kind of interesting. It's really interesting how quickly it comes back to that sense of, of property. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because we talked about land rights, and that's more in the sense of people who have been dispossessed, right? right. Access, access to land, traditional land, ancestral land, this sort of thing. But this is really about property and, and the perception of ownership. And this is mine from, you know, the, as far up as I can look and as far down as I can imagine. And who are you to tell me what to do with it? Right. And this is a story that is written across, across all of our landscapes right now, particularly as land is something that really is available to the highest bidder right now. And I say that in a very literal sense, because all over the world we have land grabs. So yeah, now we're getting to like geopolitics and some of the things that really are not, have not been talked about in the context of some of our ecological concerns. So for example, um, one thing that we're not talking about much is the food stress in China. I mean, so this is in an, like this is, we've got 1.3 billion people, many of whom are, have been urbanized. You know, people have gone to, this, to, this, uh, to the cities and are not growing their own food as people had done traditionally. And the rural areas are then, are losing people and have been ecologically degraded. So what's happening is that China is kind of outsourcing its farming to lots of places. And China isn't the only place that's doing this. A lot of the wealthy countries in the Middle East are concerned about water. And so they're buying land elsewhere in Africa mostly. And so buying land is also buying water. So anyway, I've been thinking about this a lot because this is another backstory of the, the crisis in the Amazon rainforest as a lot of that land is taken out of, I mean, it's, it's well, deforested so that agricultural commodities can be produced for consumers hundreds of thousands of miles away. Right, right. And one thing that I read really just kind of just made this so vivid. And so this is, this is what's happening then on the ground in Brazil is that a, one hectare of cleared land is worth 200 times the value of a hectare of intact forest. And that is just mind blowing because this is all about utility. This is all about ownership and what can be extracted from that land as opposed to the ecological import of land that ultimately the, benefits all of us. The yeah. true value, you could say. Right. So, the, what, yeah. so what, what is the value of that hectare five years later when it's desert? 
Well, that I don't know, but I think they can delay the desert for a while by um, using agrochemicals and, and all that. I mean, there's a, a lot one can do to milk from that, from that yeah, property. Provide, provided you leave enough intact buffer, right? In standing forests, guarantee the rains still come. Right, right. Which of course, as this happens, you know, more and more, then that becomes more and more fragile. But the point that you made, what you just said, you referred to the true value of that land. Our challenge is that there is no measure of that, 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 that true value of that land ecologically, there is no metric for that. No yeah. one is looking at that. There's no place on any balance sheet or any policy or any economic plan for that. And if we're going to think about designing our systems, I'd, I'd put that right up there on top of what we need to grapple with. Yeah, it's like there are so many different manifestations of this kind of thinking in our society and in the systems that we have evolved or created, right? Uh, that, that kind of keep it all self-reinforcing. So if you, right. think about, if you think about the valuation of a stay-at-home, usually female domestic partner, right? right? As opposed to the go-from-home income-generating partner. Right. And we know, of course, you know, globally, this is probably 99.9% .9 the women at home. So the value of nurturing. Right. Right? Yes. Not yes, recorded. I, right. right. Yeah. I, I heard, um, there was a quote, um, this fellow named David Graeber, who wrote the book Debt, The First 5,000 Years. I, I saw a reference to a quote of his, which, which was basically the more socially, socially useful work that a person does, the harder it is to be paid for that. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a real... It's expected. It's just yeah. expected, isn't it? It's like, of course, that's, that's just going to be delivered. And if it doesn't, all hell breaks loose. Right. right. And <laughs> that's a real challenge for people doing regenerative, restorative work. Yeah. Because it doesn't fit into a category right now. I'd say that one of, one of my least favorite words in the English language, I mean, it's kind of a made up word, these, but it's used all the time, is monetize. So, I mean, yeah. on the one hand, one wants, to, one wants to do work and feel that it is valued and to be paid for that. But something about the notion of monetizing something, because, I, I, yeah. I think that comes right out of the extractive right. thought, thought box, right? Yes, we exactly. have a, we have this system that is based upon. Well, what is it? It, it grabs, it commandeers, it extracts, it concentrates, and then it moves off site. Right. In the meantime, the GDP right. goes up, and everybody, yeah. you know, thinks that's a good thing. Yeah, so I think that, you know, when you look at a lot of the 
tensions right now. I, sometimes I think about this in that it's in terms of we've basically monetized everything, you know, social relationships, um, you know, with, with um, care and like, you know, Airbnb and, you know, all, all these different kinds of, of, of things. And, um, and then, and also we've basically monetized as much of the planet as we possibly can, you know, extracted. So we're kind of, we collectively as humans have hit a wall, but that's where I often think that where, that where value is and where valued work comes from is in the restoring of our ecosystems. And I guess the restoring of our communities, relationships, and all of that, that would come from, that would naturally evolve as people find meaningful work and in healing the earth and healing, um, you know, creating the conditions for communities once again to thrive. You know, and I'm coming from a place where I go to a lot of rural areas where they're losing population. You know, a lot of people in urban areas don't really see this. They know it as an abstract, but even where I live in Vermont, we're losing population, farms are, are failing, and that creates a whole lot of other challenges. Um, there are certainly people really trying hard here to you know, revive our communities. Well, we're, we've lost a couple of colleges here in southwestern Vermont, that kind of thing. But anyway, um, so while, you know, the flip side of too many people in cities and rents going up and, and challenges from that perspective, the flip side of that is communities in rural areas that are losing population, losing their sense of why they're there and what's important. And actually this now um, leads us into another bit of reporting that I did in Spain um, that I think I told you about visiting the common land Al Valal project in yes, Andalusia. Yes. Yeah. So, so bring us into that. Okay. All right. So there is a company that's based in the Netherlands called Common Land. And basically what Common Land does is it creates opportunities for people to invest in restoring landscapes. So they have four landscapes. I mean, I, I was very impressed with what I saw and what I've read. This is a company that has really thought through what they're doing. They are very careful not to overextend. So they're focusing on four landscapes, one in Spain, one in South Africa, one in the Netherlands and one in Australia. So I was the, in the one in Spain and this, this is basically what it is. So, so they wanted to invest in a region and see if there were opportunities to restore via regenerative agriculture in, in an area in Spain. So they found this area in Andalusia, which is, it kind of straddles a couple of different provinces, um, forgive me, are they states or provinces in Spain? I forget. Provinces. Provinces. provinces okay, so, yeah. so Murcia, Almeria, and Granada. 
Okay, forgive my Spanish, <laughs> my okay, Spanish okay. pronunciation. You so, can correct so, me. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, so Murcia. Thank you. Uh, Almeria. Yeah. And, and Granada. Thank you. Oh, it sounds okay. so nice when you when you say it. Um, so okay, so they found this this area. It's the high plains, the Altiplano, and this is where farms had been. So there are sixteen like 16th century farmhouses that have been abandoned. The land looks terrible. It's been desertifying. It had been, it's basically been hammered by industrial agriculture. They were, this area has been losing population. Young people feel that they have no future there. So they fit their only option is to go to the cities, get degrees, kind of join the, you know, the urban global economy, as opposed to the agricultural economy that their, that their, their ancestors have had, you know, had focused on. And, but what they found is that there were a number of farmers who were very excited about applying new practices and doing regenerative work and, and holding on to their traditions. There were very proud traditions. So, Common Land helped to develop a local association, which is called Al Valal, and work with this local association and helped fund educational programs and all sorts of things. But the, the main framework of the Common Land approach is four returns. So it's the return of its financial return, return of capital, return of nature, so return of ecological health, return of social capital, meaning to rebuild these communities that have been fraying at the edges. And then the fourth one is return of inspiration. And that, I mean, it sounds a little kind of cute, but it was actually the piece that made this, that really created a spark with these programs. And I was able to see how that played into the picture. So on their, their actual work on the ground, they, and okay, so there's another factor is that unlike most investments, they take 20 years, okay? And this is an acknowledgement that many of our problems come from the fact that everything needs to show a short-term profit. So, you know, this is, why our landscapes often suffer because we've got that quick extraction, we've got that, you know, turbocharged industrial agriculture machine. Okay. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, and then, so with their landscapes, mm -hmm. they have three zones an economic zone, the productive zone, a natural zone, which is based on the understanding that leaving land uncultivated actually makes the entire area more productive because of the ecological function, because of the, inta the intactness of forests that help regulate the water cycle. So the precipitation, the pollinators, the wildlife, all of that, and then a mixed zone, which could be recreational areas, it could be um, residential. So the, the mixed, mixed zones. So there, so this area in Spain is the largest region of rain-fed almond production in the world. So they are working with 
a, an almond landscape. Now, the conventional way, where the way most people are producing almonds there is they have their almond trees alone, standing there alone in the landscape. So what they are doing is they are encouraging people to have ground cover around the, the cover crops around the, the almond trees, which add biodiversity, which stimulate the, the, the soil microbiology, which also, um, also provides, so they're using, they're, they're using, you know, herbs that can be made into essential oils like lavender and, and thyme um, and sage. So that's part of the system. And then they're bringing in native lambs, Segura lambs. And that is interesting because that is a, a native variety which has been almost lost because in industrial agriculture, people often impose kind of the standard livestock breeds that people are used to working with and that are a known quantity. So anyway, there are many elements of their production, but that's what they're, that's what they're focusing on. So it's a permaculture layering, really, of, of, of actors, in, in a sense. Yes. Right? If you think of each of these life forms as a different actor. I'm curious, uh, do you have any idea what the total footprint is for that project? Is it anywhere close to the 10, 10 uh, square kilometers that you oh, mentioned earlier? Oh, my goodness. We're talking about a million hectares. So this so, is huge. So we, would, a, we drove across the region. And so it is very large. I mean, so not that they have an impact ev in, in every place, but, but... But they have the potential to impact yes. that and yes. actually show that they can bring rain back. That's, yes. what I'll be, that's what I'll be looking for. Yeah. That would, be, yeah. that would be fantastic. I mean, what they're doing now is that they are bringing community back. Yes. Yes, and when we talk about regenerative it's so easy to get siloed into one or the other because there, there, there are really good projects happening in both community and in land. But I find there aren't as many that we can look at that are very clear that the two need to overlay. Right, so that, that was one thing that was very exciting to see is that young people are coming back. There was one young woman that I talked to, she's in her late 20s and she is just so happy that she can live in the community in which she grew up and that she can bring her skills. She studied environmental science. I think she won some regional award. Her name is Belen. And she, um, yeah, she's excited. And she says her friends come back and are thrilled and they see, I mean, they haven't moved back. Many of them haven't moved back yet, but they, they see that all of this is happening. And one thing that was interesting in the area, and what was interesting actually is that several, three of the places where Commonland is working, they have Paleolithic art, that there's a very, very, like that humanity has been there <laughs> expressing itself and, you know, engaging with the landscapes and, share, and really, you know, expressing that artistically for a really long time. Fantastic. So we went up to this mountain where there's rock art and a fellow named Dietmar Roth 
um, who's originally German, but has become a kind of, you know, spokesperson, champion of this lovely little town called Velez Blanco. He's a historian and he took us to this area of rock art and we saw the, the, the paintings on the, on, the, on the land. And one image that he showed us is what's called an indalo, the indalo. It's a figurine, it's a person who's holding either a bow and arrow or a, a scythe or something. And that image is found all over the town. And it's something that people are, are proud of. And so what he shared with us is that there's a project to revegetate a denuded landscape. Um, it's La Muela, it means the tooth. You know, actually when I think about it, every mountain looks like a tooth, <laughs> but this is called the tooth because it apparently looks like a tooth more than many mountains. And they're working with the, the nonprofit Ecosia, the oh, yeah, search, yeah, yeah, the search engine, the search engine that plants yeah. trees. Yeah. So they're reforesting the upper part, and the lower part, the lower third, they are revegetating with these herbs, and they are planting all this vegetation, so that there's an image of the indalo that one that can be seen from a distance. So again, that's 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 pride of place. People are celebrating that. They're working with, with um, people with special needs, special schools that are helping to revegetate. And so everybody's getting involved. Everybody has a, a stake in the success. Everybody can take pride. And I think pride is something that often gets lost in these rural communities that have been undone by industrial agriculture, like sure. the area yeah. in Spain. Like sure. here, like Kansas, that I saw. I was going to say, yeah, that's the same as my experience in Vermont. Well, you know, many years ago when I lived there, it's it's when when money is associated with power, right? Which that's what it does in our culture, um, and then the money drains away, right? Because money does flow, has been flowing out of rural areas into yeah. the money centers. Then the community loses self-esteem. You right. Know, among many, many other things in this cascade. Right. And in a place like southern Vermont, where I am, you know, one manifestation of that has been the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. As people, young people especially, see very little future. So that's, that's been a real Yeah, problem. I mean, you know, you talked about like what the fourth, the, the, one of the four deliveries of common land being inspiration. And, you know, from my time living in the Mediterranean area, which is, has not been my lifetime, but, but a number of years, um, one of the tragedies about this area beyond the ecological, you know, as we, we said earlier, kind of, you know, the ecological legacy of, of, of basically, you know, stripping away resources or, or, or just sending them downhill beneath the sea, um, is the brain drain, the current brain drain. Right, the, the, the Mediterranean region has recovered less than most of Europe from the 2008, um, they still call it the crisis, 
Mm -hmm. Right. And, and now we've got, it looks like we've got another one. You know, this, the way you would see like a hurricane kind of building on the horizon. Uh, you know, we've got this new recession. It seems like it's looming and, and um, you know, they're all global now. Right. It won't just be the U.S. It, it'll, it'll bring heavy impacts to the rest of the world. We're going to take a break now. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind and Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa, who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind & Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D M-E-D-I-A dot com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Judith Schwartz, author and ecological activist. We're having a great conversation about ecosystem restoration and regenerative agriculture. Let's get back into it. So we've got, we've got that economic fragility here, which has not been able to repair itself for a whole cluster of reasons. But the result of which is that these young people who are leaving rural areas because there seems to be no future and going to the cities to study, then when they have their job, their, uh, when they receive their degrees, there's actually no jobs. Right. So they have to leave the country. Right? And so from Spain, where do they go? Northern Europe. Mm -hmm. Which is itself tense right now. Yeah. 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 So it's, you know, it's, 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 it's the classic kicking the can further down the street. Right. And it's interesting, you, you mentioned that with, with, with Spain and Northern Europe. I mean, one thing, you know, I'm thinking kind of as we're talking macro of design. Um, so, um, what brought me into all this work was I had been writing about new economics and one really important thinker who I really encourage people to read is Jane Jacobs. So we all, we all know that she wrote about, she wrote the death and life of great American cities and people know her for that. And that also shared a lot of insight about design that many people you know, might not have, um, might not have been self-evident at the time. So her book, Cities and the Wealth of Nations, is really, really powerful because it talks about the importance of regional economies. And one reason that she talks about is she talks about currency and other economic um, outcomes from a perspective of feedback giving you feedback. So I've, even before the Euro hit crises in terms of like, let's say Greece, no, like, you know, the economic crisis in Greece and often it was talked about that, well, Germany's putting in all this money, but Greece is taking and, you know, the sense of who's taking and who's giving and, and all of this. To me, that sounds like it, it is a design flaw, according that in what Jane Jacobs said, that 
if you have a like if you have a currency reflecting an economy, it gives you feedback. Whereas with something like the euro, or I would even say the dollar, that a policy that may make sense for one place doesn't make sense for another. So with the euro or the dollar, one policy move affects an, a huge, huge area and many, many economies that are actually extreme, very different and have different needs and reflect different realities. This is a really, really interesting and I think critical point, right? Um, when we, we talk about design, right? And you talk about feedback and, and, and this sort of thing. And, and, and when, I, when I teach or, or consult on, on design strategy, one of the things that I look for all the time is how do we design in our indicators? right, for success. And so that's that feedback part, right? right. When, when, you, when you have a, an indicator, a success indicator or a feedback built into the design of a system, whether that design is, is you know, quite clearly intentional and thought through, or whether it's more sort of an accumulation of, of passive decisions, it is still in one form or another, um, you know, the, the net result of a series of decisions that determine how you do something. That's one way to, I think that right. you could kind of loosely describe what design is about. Um, but the real danger, and I see this more often, much more often than not, is that we get locked into our indicators and we then allow them to drive our decisions when they're really just supposed to reflect on how we're doing. Right. Instead of taking right. that and as loads information. Of, loads of exactly. The feedback, right? The feedback should inform. It should not necessarily determine. Right. Right. And there should be the flexibility within the system to adjust to what we're learning as opposed to what we have now is that so much is riding on the success of any one indicator. Indicator, exactly, yeah. exactly. So we've become, we become trapped by yeah. our own measurement tools. Exactly, exactly. And so clearly, you know, that's what's happening with the international economic system, uh, you know, among so many other things. I mean, if there's an argument for enabling indicators to you know, closely inform strategy, it has to be the ecological one. Right. Right. Because in so many cases, those indicators really are tied to direct impact rather than some kind of an abstraction. Right, but that has been missing because in our systems, well, for example, in our economic, according to our economic model, nature, intact ecosystems have a value of zero. Yeah, so here we are full circle. Exactly. Just like that hectare of land in Brazil that once cleared is worth 100 to 200 times the you know, intact forest. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so this, this is a design flaw, but there hasn't been any driver to bring that into our economic model. So 
we're dealing with at least two <laughs> completely distinct real parallel realities. And that that's really disorienting. That is yeah. really disorienting. And yeah. it's hard to it's kind of hard to know how to move through that that space. It's hard to it's it's I would say it's hard to know how to negotiate it, right? Right. That, that kind of sense that that you want to be kind of awake to the moment and have this this you know this sort of give and take and this kind of playoff of factors you know that sense of a negotiation and as you say a navigation as well, but it makes me remember a comment that I've heard many times over the years, and almost exclusively exclusively from indigenous people, which is you know there's these two kind of conflicting systems you guys are, are, are kind of working with here. There is your Western laws, which would include economic systems and their functioning, and et cetera, et cetera. And then there's natural law. Guess which one always wins? Yep. Right? And so now, you know, like that's the wall we've hit. Yeah. It's kind of like, the the natural law wall this and that's implacable right right and it's really interesting that human generated law does not consider nature and so something can be completely legal and judgment rendered upon it and yet it harms nature with which ultimately harms people but harming nature in and of itself is a big problem whether or not there are people so it, yeah. it remind it reminds me of many many years ago the recession i don't remember now whether it was a bush or a reagan recession but like all recessions it was a republican one um it was when the texas savings and loans scandal mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. erupted. I don't remember who was president then. But at the time that that happened, you know, and it caused a huge recession, it was a, there, was a, there was an overnight crash. Um, and for those listeners who weren't alive then or may not, may not remember that, it had to do, I mean, you might remember better than I do, uh, but it was a, a fairly small circle of corruption that in, involved the savings and loan industry in Texas, but they, because of the cross-investment into so many other uh, complete sectors of, of the finance world, it was able to bring down an awful lot with it. Um, essentially, they were proven to have no assets. They were kiting checks. Um, but, but in the wake of this, uh, there was a reporter who um, just questioned, like, how could this be possible, that they didn't see this coming? And so he looked at the banking sector in, I think it was Germany. And um, at that time, their planning cycle was a 20-year cycle. So they knew what to expect between the moment and 20 years into the future, more or less. You know, I mean, they, they, had, a, they, had, a, they had a sense of trajectory and, and, and planning. Then he went to Japan. And at that time in Japan, the planning cycle was 200 years. Multi-generational, right? For, mm -hmm. the, for, the, for the financial sector. Came back and looked at the states. Was it five minutes? It was six months. <laughs> yeah, that's, and, that's the U.S. 
you know, and, and so with that kind of short termism, and I, I, I would argue it's probably shrunk an awful lot since then. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very difficult to assign longer term, you know, biologically and sociologically based value to something. Right. When the, mar- yeah. when the market demands to be able to basically sell it tomorrow. Yeah. It's a, it's a big, it's, yes, it is a huge challenge. So back to law, um, I think the rights of nature movement is really powerful and has extraordinary potential. So um, do you know the, the group Stop Ecocide? Uh, Um, Not, I'm not sure I could be conversant on it. Okay. Polly Higgins, who, yes, yes. Uns- who tragically, you know, contracted an illness and died within a very short period of time. She's, she was a British lawyer who um, felt that nature needed legal representation. So, so that's one area. I know that there are other entities. Well, there's, that- for, instance, there's a, for instance, a law in New Zealand and another one in Bolivia, which have both given landscapes some kind of right. like legal, right. legal standing. Right. Yeah. So I think that's a really powerful reframing. Um, yeah. Just, just, just since to, to understand how we might be able to shift some of our systems into structures that actually consider ecology. What's interesting to me about that is that it seems like it's been many, many generations since we've had people come together to question things on such a fundamental basis in our systems, mm-hmm. right? From the outside, obviously, we've been getting advice from other cultures. And unfortunately, the way we do stuff is pretty much globalized. Right. So those other cultures, while many and scattered. Unfortunately, are, really scattered. Yeah. And, and relatively few people representing each one. Um, but it, no, it, it is interesting that it's kind of come full circle. So that says to me, there's something kind of basically human about that recognition. And, that, and that's pretty positive. But let's, let's just do a big jump um, and talk a little bit about the book you're working on now, because I'm, I'm sure a lot of the thinking that, you know, this kind of meta level stuff we've been talking about also comes down to the ground um, as people come together and not just demonstrate, but put their hands to work in this kind of restoration of community and land. Yes. Okay. So the book that I'm right now revising has the working title, but it will likely not be the title, Restoration Flash Mob, The Curious Person's Guide to Earth Repair. So basically the book looks at eco-restoration as a grassroots response to rapidly evolving global crisis. So, that's 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 where we are. <laughs> um, that that yeah. puts it squarely squarely in the response to the nature the rights of nature. Yes. So in this book, um, 
Yeah. So I look at lots of projects. I look at different landscapes. I look at different environmental and social landscapes to really understand how people are grappling with the task we have ahead of us, which is to rehabilitate damaged ecosystems and damaged communities. So ex an example, an example is I go to Hawaii and in Maui, the last, okay, so I had never been to Hawaii before. So in Hawaii, the last sugar plantation closed at the end of 2016 on the island of Maui. So the community there said, okay, there's all this sugar land now. I mean, granted it had been, you know, doused with chemicals and burned, you know, all the, all the, all of what happens in production of sugar, which I had no idea was as damaging as it is. We have all this land and we have an opportunity to create something new. So, or actually something drawing on something old, which is the indigenous practices that had been suppressed during the plantation era. So people are gathering together to explore different ways of doing regenerative agriculture on this landscape. So for example, they're looking very closely at food security. Last year in the fall of 2018, two hurricanes skirted the island. It wasn't a direct hit, but the barges that bring products to the island were circling around. And so the supermarket shelves were rapidly getting kind of bare. They realized that Maui imports 90% of its food. Now, it is such a lush landscape. There is so much that grows there. The people that I met that are really, really working to create something new for the island, you know, they're stunned by how little they use their own land because all of the land was used for sugar, which was for export. So it's to the point where they are importing bananas from Ecuador, whereas bananas in all kinds of varieties grow copiously on their land. So they're really getting to know what, is, what works on their land. And so people are doing successional agroforestry, which is also called syntropic agriculture. And that rapidly, so there, it's, it's, it's using, it's rapidly building biomass and, and using that to build soil organic matter and bringing ecological succession forward so that the landscapes, the, the ecosystems um, reach maturity much sooner. So there, there was a, a farmer, there, there was a, a farm called Hokunui and a um, native Hawaiian forestry manager named um, Koa Hewa Hewa. And so he, do, he does what he's managing their forest systems and he calls it polyforestry, the poly coming from Polynesian agroforestry because those, those are their Lovely. traditions. Lovely. Yeah. So, so he's doing his own model of this and we saw, uh, he's working quarter acre by quarter mm. acre. We saw 
a, a plot of forest that looked quite mature. The trees were were fairly high. That, that had on, that only been planted 14 months ago. So to see just how rapidly these systems flourish is really incredible. That's so, impressive. Yeah. Really, really impressive. Right. So then they have to do a lot of remediation because of because of the pineapple pl plantations and the um, and the sugar plantations. So this is all being explored and being worked out and who's going to invest in the land and and so there was some big investment that were they were saying all the right things and then the farm it was some Canadian pension fund and you know big time investors from California they were saying all the right things and then the then the farm manager quit abruptly so I have to catch up on what's going on there but I think but the people there would like it to be more grassroots than outside investment so We'll, so that's, we'll see. that's a really good example of, of something I've come across called re-inhabitation. Okay. What is, Where you what kind is. of come back and, and, and get to intimately know a place again. Right. You know, and, it's, and, and the way you need to be with it to make it work. Right. And an important thing, and again, I didn't know this. I didn't know how how totally a plantation economy can subsume a culture yeah so people there were talking about the plantation of the mind you know the the plantation system of the mind and people are of native hawaiians are beginning to say okay we can put this behind us we can draw on our strengths. We can look at the, at the, the crops that have sustained us, our people for a long time, but have had no value in the market economy. So rather than sugar, there can be breadfruit, for example, because they were talking about just all the ways that the breadfruit, and I forget the actual name of the plant, but what, how that had sustained them. So they're rediscovering and asking what is best for this landscape and what is best for us and what helps us feel connected to the land. And it just actually exactly what you were saying, what conditions and what plants will facilitate our own re-inhabiting. It's place. a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story. It, it, it makes me think of that other expression, the kind of decolonization of the mind. Right. Which, which right. again, is something I first came across in working with Indigenous uh, leaders and speakers and activists. Right. And it is really heartening to see that the people who, you know, the white people from the rest of the U.S. who have gone there and are listening and working with the Native people. So that's, 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 that's happening there. Um, so, so that, that was really interesting. And then another example um, is I went to New Mexico. And so that was, that's, so all these chapters are about land, but also about people. So, you know, we know what to do. 
you know, the disciplines of ecology and and permaculture and holistic management, you know, we've got the templates, but it's the commitment of people. It's people willing to do this, willing to try the new, willing to work with sayings, robbers. So that is a real challenge. So I worked, so there's a colleague um, who I've gotten to know named Jeff Goebel, who works on this consensus model that allows people to really engage with land and enables them to do what's right by their land through really looking at their own fears of change, their own anxieties, their own um, conflicts within the community and finding that so often the barriers to change. So an example that, that, that um, he shared and I, I wrote about was he did a workshop in Montana where land was degrading and there were a lot of ranchers and they couldn't make any money and all of their children were leaving and they were all grieving that they couldn't bring their, this life that they had loved, their ranching, into the next generation. So they all gathered together and they shared their aspirations and they shared their fears. And what, what it turned out is that while they knew that managing their cattle in a more holistic way, using holistic planned grazing, would give them better results, what they feared, their concern, was what their neighbors would think. And here they are sitting around a table with their neighbors who are afraid of what they might think. So what was stopping them from making a change that they knew would be for the better for their land and for their families, what was stopping them was what they all worried that the other would judge them harshly. So they it was were- like self-generated fiction. Exactly. Exactly. So what happened was they were able to get past this, I think even laugh about it, and shift towards a land management model that actually gave them a better economic outcome. And I don't remember whether, I, I know it made it possible for their children to take over the ranches, but I, I don't know exactly how many did. But, you know, that was an example. So, so what I observed in this community in New Mexico with it's um, land, really desertified land. I mean, really, really pounded land. Um, a, a rural area near Capiz in the area of Cabazon, not that far from Albuquerque. And it is on the Rio Puerca, Rio Puerco, excuse me, which means Pig River. Pigs, yeah. <laughs> or basically dirty river, which is the most sedimented river area in the United States. I mean, this is this river does not function. Um, so it's this really, really difficult ecosystem. And there's a community where there was a, a tension around access to water, who governs the pump house. And it had gotten to the point of people weren't talking to each other. People were afraid to bring their children to the area. It got to the point of gunfire. 
And I watched this process where people moved from in one weekend, that space of being suspicious of each other to people being ready to work together and improve their land. And now some of the people who had the worst land are holding workshops on holistic plan grazing. So it is a transformation. Fantastic. Yes. You know, that really, that really kind of underscores the fact that healing is, it's more than a circle. It's, it's kind of a web, right? It's, but, but like when you heal the land together, you heal the community. Taking right. part in that healing is personally healing. Right. Right. I like what, what John Liu says. I don't know if your audience, your audience likely knows that John Liu is a, a Chinese American filmmaker who has really been promoting ecological restoration. He, he um, documented the rehabilitation of China's Los Plateau, which is an extraordinary story, which I also tell in the book. But what he says is that the landscapes, our landscapes are reflections of our own consciousness. So, it that, makes sense, doesn't it? Yes, it and doesn't that was reflected in, in this, this place in New Mexico where everybody was suffering. And as the community started to heal and even bringing these people into, into a room together, I mean, there were people where the grievances had gone back generations. And to have these people sitting together at lunch and laughing and sharing what they just all some of their common experiences and they talked about how they all used to get together for for picnics and barbecues but that hasn't happened in decades so getting the people back together created the conditions for them to also engage in a more positive way with their land that's that's positive hopeful instructive Right, uh, inspiring. I think um, we're pretty much out of time for 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 this. We've gone over, but I've I've not wanted to to end it really because it's so interesting. Um, is there something you'd like to leave the listeners with? You know, in specific beyond what we've talked about. Oh my goodness! Um, well, I would invite anyone to to share this journey I've been on by checking out my my books, my book on soil. Cows Save the Planet and Other Improbable Ways of Restoring Soil to Heal the Earth, and Water in Plain Sight, Hope for a Thirsty World. And, and we'll, have all those, we'll have all those linked when right. we publish this. Right. Um, and uh, if they want to get in touch with you specifically to maybe contribute stories or, or give you some ideas for other people that you might want to include in your new book or, you know, things along those lines, would you invite that? Should they Absolutely. contact you? Always, yeah. I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, and I have a website that has a contact page. My website is simply judithdschwartz.com. And just a slight caveat is that it's kind of out of date. And I'm just sort of treading water with that website until I get this book done and, you know, move, you know, create a new website that's, that's looking forward towards that. And I hope that it won't be too long in the future till this book is out but um yeah it's just i'm i'm just revising it and we'll go from there cool thanks so much for your time it 
been oh, really my goodness. Really nice catching up with you. Yes, well, you too. I appreciate it. And um, onwards. Yes, onwards okay. for all of us. Thank okay. you. Okay, take care. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of Designing Paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. R-A-S-A dot A-G. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.